Welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. My name's Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we're going to be talking about some gothic ladies and some sad ladies. So Emily, how's your week been? It's been almost a week since I saw you in real life. I know. It's been a weird one. I've, I've got back to work, so it's strange. But I'm, I'm glad to like see all my co-workers again because I have missed them. So it's felt like a long week and a tired week, but also good at the same time. That's good. I was going to ask you what's like post-lockdown, like what is the world like out there? Because I've not really ventured into it. <laughs> are people wearing um, their masks? Most people are wearing their masks. Some people are not. Some people are wearing masks, but not covering their noses, which just baffles me because you're already halfway there. So why yeah. not just put it over your nose? Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit weird. I've I've honestly not been out much besides from my work. Like mm-hmm. I literally just go straight to work and go straight home mm-hmm. unless I'm going for like a walk somewhere. So I haven't really seen a, a lot of lockdown life to be honest. Fair enough. Well, I don't want my flatmate and my friend to be infected, so if y'all could just wear your masks when you're going to the shops. And how have you been this week? I've been fine. I've been on holiday from work, so like that's nice. I've been mostly working on uni stuff, so it hasn't really been a break as such. But it's nice, it's fun. Like, it's fun to get back into my project. I've taken, like, some time off of it to be at work, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's just been good, but I'm gonna go back to work today and I'm very tired, so... <laughs> yeah, I think this is our first time recording in the morning as well, so it'll be interesting to see the energy level difference. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? This week I am infatuated with Mexican Gothic by Silvio Moreno Garcia. It's a very pretty cover. It is a very pretty cover. I just want to start by saying that this book is exactly what my PhD is about so I'm about to get quite analytical and I hope that you guys don't mind me going a bit it's quite quote heavy and I'm bringing in like other references and diving more into research ideas rather than just talking about the stuff that I liked. I mean I'm a fan. I mean I know you'll be a fan but this is just a warning to anyone who just likes us to talk about pretty quotes. (laughs) Probably not going to do that today. I had a lot of fun like writing my little script for today. Go for it. I'm excited to hear it. (laughs) So Mexican Gothic came out about a month ago now. It's at the end of June uh, 2020. It's set in Mexico in the 1950s and it follows main character Naomi who is this glamorous socialite and she receives a letter from her cousin Catalina who is recently married to a man called Virgil. They live in this big grand house in the mountains and it's called High Place. And in this letter, Catalina claims that she's been poisoned and she needs to be rescued. Okay. So the plan is that Naomi will go to High Place, suss out what's going on, and if Catalina really does need rescued, then she'll bring her home. Naomi's dad sends her because he says that she's stubborn and she'll get the answers. (laughs) I like that. It sounds a little bit like my cousin Rachel already. Oh, I actually haven't read or seen that, so... Oh well, I can't. I can't say, but I mean, it's Demore, so yeah, I think. Yeah. I can imagine it is the same. Yes. So what transpires is that Naomi ends up staying much longer than she bargained for, 
and the mystery keeps getting bigger the more that she unravels. You'd think that by this time one or both of us or the world in general would be tired of like a mystery in a big spooky house but no (laughs) it's just always fucking good. (laughs) Yeah it's always fun. Right so I thought I would start by reading a quote that tells us the difference in personalities between Naomi and her cousin Catalina. So this quote is between Naomi and Virgil. Is your room satisfactory? Virgil asked, his tone warming, turning a bit more cordial. She was, perhaps, not his enemy. It's fine. Having no electricity is odd, but I don't think anyone has died from a lack of light bulbs yet. Catalina thinks the candlelight is romantic. Naomi supposed she would. It was the kind of thing she could imagine impressing her cousin. An old house atop a hill, with mist and moonlight, like an etching out of a gothic novel. Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, those were Catalina's sort of books. Moors and spider webs, castles too, and wicked stepmothers who forced princesses to eat poisoned apples. Dark fairies cursing maidens and wizards who turn handsome lords into beasts. Naomi preferred to jump from party to party on a weekend and drive a convertible. I like this quote because it just very quickly tells us what we need to know Mm. about their personalities. So Naomi's a socialite, Catalina is this very dreamy reader and what Catalina's book interests also do is tell us what genre this Mm -hmm. book is in. It's in the female gothic tradition. For anyone who doesn't know, that was the subject of my master's dissertation and like I said before, it's what I'm going to be doing my PhD in. I'm definitely going to have to whittle down some big ideas into bite-sized pieces today, but I'll try my best to describe what the genre is without going too overboard. And Rebecca, you can just pretend to be a novice and ask me anything if you think I need to explain it. So the most basic way I can think to describe the female gothic compared to the general genre or what you could call the male gothic is that the male gothic often features more horror elements or supernatural elements, whereas the female gothic is more typically focused on real fears. So the female gothic can be a place to explore like the patriarchy, domestic abuse, marriages entrapment, psychological fears and lots of other female issues like that. And one of these issues is female hysteria, which as I'm sure lots of us know, was a way of dismissing women's fears or to not diagnose actual real issues. Yeah, well, like, for anyone that doesn't know, hysteria has the same root word as hysterectomy. So just meditate on that for a sec. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I would also read from the letter that Catalina sends to Naomi. Naomi had a hard time reading the words, much less making sense of the sentences. The handwriting seemed unsteady, sloppy. He is trying to poison me. This house is sick with rot, stinks of decay, brims with every single evil and cruel sentiment. I have tried to hold on to my wits, to keep this vileness away, but I cannot and I find myself losing track of time and thoughts. Please, please, they are cruel and unkind and they will not let me go. I bar my door, but still they come. They whisper at nights and I am so afraid of these restless dead, these ghosts, fleshless things. The snake eating its tail, the foul grounds beneath our feet, the false faces and false tongues, the web upon which the spider walks making the strings vibrate. 
I am Catalina, Catalina Tabuada. Catalina, Kata, Kata, come out to play. I miss Naomi. I pray I'll see you again. You must come for me, Naomi. You have to save me. I cannot save myself as much as I wish to. I am bound, threads like iron through my mind and my skin, and it's there, in the walls. It does not release its hold on me, so I must ask you to spring me free. Cut it from me. Stop them now. For God's sake. Hurry, Catalina. Holy. <laughs> it's intense. That's gorgeous, though. Yeah. Do you know what really strikes me about that? Is like that letter doesn't sound like it should come from a character that exists when convertibles exist. Yeah, that's true, actually. It's so, it's almost like she's like in one of her own books. Yeah, I think that's kind of worth noting because Naomi and her dad do kind of think like, is she being, you know, hysterical? Mm. Because she has a tendency to be dramatic and she loves these gothic books and she lives in kind of a dream world. Mm. So that kind of is their first thought. They're like, okay, maybe she's just... Carried away. Yeah, but I think anyone can tell here that there really is something going on even if we don't know what it is yet definitely I know for anyone hearing that quote for the first time it just sounds like madness and is quite confusing and you don't really get what's going on but it's such an interesting read second time around because so much that she says in that letter makes sense once you've read the book and discovered what's going on oh I love that foreshadowing Mm mm-hmm on to another quote. I told you this would be quite <laughs> quote heavy. Honestly, it's fine because as usual, for anyone interested, Emily has prepared an entire essay and I have eight bullet points. <laughs> <laughs> so you take it away, my friend. <laughs> so I wanted to read this quote because I think it depicts Naomi's intelligence, which I don't think is something I've mentioned yet, but she is a very intelligent woman. It also is the quote that made me realise that perhaps this book is heavily inspired by another female gothic text. So after I've read this quote, I'll I'll talk about what book I mean. In a corner of her room, there was a bit of mould upon the wallpaper that caught her eye. She thought of those green wallpapers, so beloved by the Victorians that contained arsenic, the so-called Paris in Skeel Greens. And wasn't there something in a book she'd read once about how microscopic fungi could act upon the dyes in the paper and form arsine gas, sickening the people in the room? She was certain she'd heard about how these most civilised Victorians had been killing themselves in this way, the fungi chomping on the paste in the wall, causing unseen chemical reactions. She couldn't remember the name of the fungus that had been the culprit. Latin names danced at the tip of her tongue. Brevicol but she thought she had the facts right. Her grandfather had been a chemist and her father's business was the production of pigments and dyes, so she knew to mix zinc sulphite and barium sulphate if you wanted to make lithopon and a myriad of other bits of information. Well, the wallpaper was not green, not even close to green. It was a muted pink, the colour of faded roses with ugly yellow medallions running across it. Medallions are circles. When you looked at it closely, you might think they were wreaths. She might have preferred the green wallpaper. This was hideous, and when she closed her eyes, the yellow circles danced behind her eyelids, flickers of colour against black. Oh, we got some yellow wallpaper up in here! Yes, definitely. (laughs) That's so cool. I didn't know that about the fungus, though. That's, like, that explains a lot. 
yeah i did not know that either so yeah first of all i like that sylvia makes an effort to drive home this idea that naomi is intelligent she wants to be an anthropology major so she knows a lot about like history and science and she makes an effort to learn about botany from one of the residents francis while she's staying at high place which just shows that she's like always willing to learn something and her knowledge also gives the text a lot of grounding in reality so what happens in the house i'm obviously not going to spoil it but it isn't from the real world but because there's all these threads of real life research and information throughout the book it does become believable because it's almost like there's a science backing it up Mm. even though it does take like quite a bizarre turn Okay. And then secondly, yeah, it reminds me of The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Now, just before you go into this, a clarification on your female gothic definition for people that want to know more. Would we be right in saying that the female gothic, as opposed to the male gothic, would take place more inside? Is that a thing? Yeah, typically, because the house kind of becomes a symbol for the patriarchy so you're trapped inside Mm. so yeah i mean not not in every text but yeah typically yes so the idea that paying attention to the decor in the house it becomes quite significant yeah definitely so for anyone who doesn't know the yellow wallpaper is a perfect study of the way women's mental health was treated and arguably how it still feels sometimes (laughs) today it was written in 1892 And the narrator, who we think in retrospect was suffering from postpartum depression or psychosis, she sees a woman in the yellow wallpaper in the room that she's been contained in is a rest treatment. And the woman in this wallpaper is trapped between bars which are formed by a pattern on the wall. So what I thought I might do is read a quote from the yellow wallpaper just for anyone who hasn't read it. Mm -hmm. And because it'll be easier for me to refer to, like going forward yeah also my copy of this book is one of the penguin little black classics mm-hmm. it's like 50 pages and it costs a pound so it's well worth picking up for anyone who is interested on a pattern like this by daylight there is a lack of sequence a defiance of law that is a constant irritant to a normal mind the color is hideous enough and unreliable enough and infuriating enough but the pattern is torturing You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well underway in following, it turns a back somersault and there you are. It slaps you in the face, knocks you down and tramples upon you. It is like a bad dream. The outside pattern is a florid arabesque, reminding one of a fungus. If you can imagine a toadstool in joints, an interminable string of toadstools, budding and sprouting in endless convulsions, why, that is something like it. That is, sometimes. There is one marked peculiarity about this paper, a thing nobody seems to notice but myself, and that is that it changes as the light changes. When the sun shoots in through the east window, I always watch for that first long, straight ray. It changes so quickly that I can never quite believe it. That is why I watch it always. By moonlight, the moon shines in all night when there is a moon. I wouldn't know if it was the same paper. At night, in any kind of light, In twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all by moonlight, it becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean, and the woman behind it is as plain as can be. 
I didn't realise for a long time what the thing was that showed behind, that dim sub-pattern, but now I am quite sure it is a woman. Oh, it's so good, man. It really is. It's I love it. It's such a great short story. It's one of my favourite ones that that we studied because it is so short, but it has everything. It does. So um, I'm, I'm going to talk about that more, but I thought I would read another quote from Mexican Gothic just while that one's fresh in your mind. Okay. <laughs> so to give this one a little bit of context, Naomi is starting to have really weird dreams in this house okay. and they get more and more bizarre the longer that she stays. So this is one of her dreams and I would keep in mind from the yellow wallpaper the colour yellow, the women from the wallpaper and the fungus theme as well. That night she dreams that a golden flower sprouted from the walls in her room. Only it wasn't, she didn't think it was a flower. It had tendrils, yet it wasn't a vine, and next to the not flower rose a hundred other tiny golden forms. Mushrooms, she thought, finally recognising the bulbous shapes, and as she walked toward the wall, intrigued and attracted by the glow, she brushed her hands against these forms. The golden bulbs seemed to turn into smoke, bursting, rising, falling like dust upon the floor. Her hands were coated in this dust. She attempted to clean it off, wiping her hands on her nightgown, but the gold dust clung to her palms. It went under her nails. Golden dust swirled around her and it lit up the room, bathing it in a soft yellow light. When she looked above, she saw the dust glittering like miniature stars against the ceiling, and below, on the rug, was another golden swirl of stars. She brushed her foot forward, disturbing the dust on the rug, and it bounced up into the air again, then fell. Suddenly, Naomi was aware of a presence in the room. She raised her head, her hand pressed against her nightgown, and saw someone standing by the door. It was a woman in a dress of yellowed antique lace. Where her face ought to have been, there was a glow, golden like that of the mushrooms on the wall. The woman's glow grew stronger, then dimmed. It was like watching a firefly in the summer night sky. Next to Naomi, the wall had started to quiver, beating to the same rhythm as the golden woman. Beneath her, the floorboards pulsed too, a heart alive and knowing. The golden filaments that had emerged together with the mushrooms covered the wall like a netting and continued to grow. She noticed then that the woman's dress was not made of lace, but was instead woven with the same filaments. The woman raised a gloved hand and pointed at Naomi, and she opened her mouth, but having no mouth since her face was a golden blur, no words came out. Naomi had not felt scared, not until now, but this, the woman attempting to speak, it made her indescribably afraid, a fear that travelled down her spine to the soles of her feet, forcing Naomi to step back and press her hands against her lips. She had no lips, and when she tried to take another step back, she realised that her feet had fused to the ground. The golden woman reached forward, reached toward her, and held Naomi's face between her hands. The woman made a noise, like the crunching of leaves, like the dripping of water onto a pond, like the buzzing of insects in the pitch-black darkness, and Naomi wished to press her hands against her ears, but she had no hands anymore. Naomi opened her eyes, drenched in sweat. For a minute she didn't remember where she was, and then she recalled she had been invited to High Place. She reached for the glass of water she'd left by the bedside and almost knocked it down. She gulped down the whole glass and then turned her head. The room was in shadows. No light, golden or otherwise, dotted the wall's surface. 
Nevertheless, she had an impulse to rise and run her hands against the wall, as if to make sure there was nothing strange lurking behind the wallpaper. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was creepy. It's very creepy. Yeah, this is a very, very disturbing book. So yeah, I know that's quite a long quote, but it's such a good example of the kind of terror that runs through this book. So it's psychological, but there's bodily horror and something about the mushrooms and the dust and the filaments is really suffocating. Yeah, it's all stuff that stops you being able to breathe, isn't it? Fungus and dust. Yeah. And obviously there's this mention of the wallpaper and the idea that something might be lurking behind it, which you might remember is in Catalina's original letter. She thought Mm -hmm. that something was in the walls. So to me, it's as if Sylvia has read about the fungus shapes in the yellow wallpaper and then like ran with that idea, twisting it Mm. into something weirdly even more disturbing. That's so cool though. I like how she's... Obviously you don't always consciously talk back to your own genre you just kind of absorb it yeah. and then write it but I like that she is consciously making reference to that the story is such an iconic perfect example of hysteria and the way like the way that that concept is treated yeah that like it's just it's like shorthand it's just easy to un- to understand yeah definitely I would like to add it's not just the yellow wallpaper that she references or seems to take inspiration from. So, for example, the owner of the house brought over soil from England for their gardens, which any Dracula readers will know is very suspicious because Mm. vampires sleep in their own grave dirt. So, like, I read that at the start of the book and I was immediately like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, what's going to happen? It just makes your alarm bells ring if you know the genre. All that when she was saying about the vines, but they're not vines. That's very like Rebecca. Yeah, that is true. Anytime sort of like marriage is mentioned, it makes me think of Jane Eyre and it makes me think of Rebecca as well. Mm. I think it's done a good place at like solidifying its place in the genre because it can be quite risky having the genre of the book in your title because then people will always be questioning like if it fits but this one I definitely think does (laughs) yeah so yeah as we've talked about already this is a book in the female gothic genre and so Sylvia spends a lot of time talking about the injustices faced by women and one of these ideas which we've already talked about is the hysterical woman about halfway through the book Naomi has this clue And it's from another woman, Ruth, who previously lived in the house as well. Mm. And Naomi's looking at this clue, which is a letter that's very similar to Catalina's. And she's trying to work out what's going on. So as I said before, she's very intelligent, but she's getting annoyed that she can't work out what's happening. And she's beginning to doubt herself. This is proof Catalina had said. But proof of what? She laid the letter on the table and smoothed it out. She read it again. Put the facts together, you fool, she told herself, chewing on a nail. And what were the facts? That her cousin spoke about presence in this house, including voices. Ruth also described voices. Naomi had heard no voices, but she'd had bad dreams and sleepwalked, which she hadn't done in years. One could conclude this was a case of three silly, nervous women. Physicians of old would have diagnosed it as hysterics. But one thing Naomi was not was hysterical. 
If the three of them were not hysterical, then the three of them had truly come in contact with something inside this house. But must it be supernatural? Must it be a curse, a ghost? Could there be a more rational answer? Was she seeing a pattern where there wasn't any? After all, that's what humans did, look for patterns. She could be weaving three desperate stories into a narrative. She wanted to talk to someone else about this, because otherwise she was going to wear the soles of her shoes off walking back and forth in her room. That whole quote is just totally like blasted open by that last line. Yeah. I'm not hysterical. I'm not hysterical as you pace up and down. Is such a like powerful image. Yeah, I also like that it mentions her shoes and the fact that she doesn't want to ruin them, just to remind you who she is. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love what she's saying here about like finding patterns and things because it's so true. And in this book, there's there's literal patterns in the wallpaper. There's patterns in behavior, and I love how she's summed up the flaw in the hysterical female argument because all three women are experiencing pretty much the same thing in the same house. But she's also putting that idea of doubt in our minds by pointing out that humans fundamentally always search for patterns where sometimes there just aren't any. So she's she's wondering, is are we doing that? Am I doing that here? Or that also brings up the question of like, is that how physicians sort of typecast the hysterical woman? Yeah, like looking for patterns of behaviour that aren't hysterical at all. They're just patterns of behaviour. I know, it's such an interesting idea to think about. I hate how relevant this is. Yeah, that that's the thing that like... So I, I'm, I look at all these texts from, you know, so the Yellow Wallpaper, 1890s, mm. and then I look at a book that was written in 2020 and they have the exact same issues in them. And I don't know, it's like, is it disheartening? I guess so. It just makes me angry. The last quote I wanted to look at is a little bit of a different topic, but another one that I think we will get very angry at. Virgil, Catalina's husband, has just found Naomi sleepwalking and she was just in a nightgown, so he gave her his robe to cover up and he's walked her back to her room. She began to take the robe off Virgil stilled her, setting a hand on her shoulder and then carefully running his fingers down the edge of the wide lapel. You look very fine in my clothes, he said, with that voice that was made of silk. The comment was mildly inappropriate. In the daylight, with other people, it might have been a joke. At night, in the way he said it, it didn't seem at all decent. And yet, though subtly wrong, she found herself unable to reply. Don't be silly, she thought to say. Or even, I don't want your clothes. But she didn't say a thing, because it wasn't really that bad of a comment, a few words, and she didn't wish to start a fight in the middle of a dark hallway over what amounted to almost, but not quite, nothing. Oh, man. Yeah, I, like, love and hate that quote, because I think every woman has felt that way. That, like, she she can't kick off because it'll cause a scene. And people might not believe you, but maybe you made it up in your head anyway. And yeah, I think it's just a universal feeling. And I like that Sylvia has put it in there because it just adds to the creepiness of the house and it grounds it in reality and it makes you believe in Naomi and the oppression that her and Catalina are facing. Absolutely. And it's definitely, I love that because a lot of the time I think we've got this idea that back in the day, 
because that was just the way things were that women weren't bothered by it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's often the way that it's portrayed. But, like, obviously you would have been. It's just that they really couldn't say it then. Yeah. And even her, like, the way that she thinks about responding, you know, like, oh, don't be silly. It's still so mild. And she can't even say that because she thinks it's not worth it. Oh, that makes me so mad. I know, it makes me so angry. <laughs> so yeah, that that's kind of my essay today. <laughs> um, so yeah, I love this book, if you couldn't already tell. And I'm really excited to dive into it more for my PhD. I think it's going to be really useful. And yeah, if you do like books like Jane Eyre and Rebecca, or any gothic text, to be honest, then I do think you'll enjoy this one. It's a fun read because she is quite a like sassy character but it is creepy and it does get really grotesque at the end (laughs) i will i will warn you guys but i think it's a really wonderful addition to the female gothic tradition amazing it sounds really good i like how like i was saying before it feels modern but it feels this it has the same atmosphere as the older gothic texts yeah definitely and like one thing i didn't really talk about today is obviously it's set in mexico so it's mm-hmm. it's got a lot of that tradition in it as well which mm-hmm. i mean i don't really feel qualified to talk about but that's in there as well yeah it's just very fascinating nice one well thank you for sharing all your very intelligent points you're welcome i hope that all made sense to, <laughs> to everyone before i dive into what i want to say about my infatuation mm-hmm just off because I didn't obviously know what you were going to talk about but I want to find something hang on so the the writer that I'm going to talk about today is Sylvia Plath which obviously comes with a lot of the same themes of female hysteria the way that women's mental health is treated um around the same era as that book set actually because she died in 1963 this wasn't prepared I'm literally looking this up but I want to read one of her shorter poems just in response to what you said because I think it's really weirdly syncs up okay this is a poem called mushrooms oh okay overnight very whitely discreetly very quietly our toes our noses take hold on the loam acquire the air nobody sees us stops us, betrays us, the small grains make room. Soft fists insist on heaving the needles, the leafy bedding, even the paving. Our hammers, our rams, earless and eyeless, perfectly voiceless, widen the crannies, shoulder through holes. We diet on water, on crumbs of shadow, bland-mannered, asking little or nothing, so many of us, so many of us. We are shelves, we are tables, we are meek, we are edible. Nudgers and shovers, in spite of ourselves, our kind multiplies. We shall by morning inherit the earth, our foot's in the door. I like that. I've never really thought about that poem in the context of mushrooms throughout female literature. But what you were saying about fungus and the idea that it's sort of been representing hysteria in all these stories about female oppression like that 
that image, I now understand it a lot better from that poem. When I first read the yellow wallpaper, I didn't think about the fungus at all. It was reading this like Mexican Gothic mm. that made me realise what it could be a metaphor for. Definitely. Um, so yeah, that's what interesting. And like, so obviously Sylvia's kind of flipped it where she's said it's not that the mushrooms make us crazy. Like, you, you're calling us crazy. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to be real crazy then. You know, yeah. <laughs> our, foot's, our foot's in the door, we're, we're coming for you. Yeah, like I say, that wasn't one of the ones I was going to talk about today, but I just thought it was relevant. The book that I am infatuated with this week is Ariel by Sylvia Plath. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that I'd start just by introducing it a little bit, because I think the context is important. So for anyone that doesn't know, although you probably do, Sylvia Plath is famously the writer who stuck her head in the oven and committed suicide. And it was really tragic. She was also famously married to Ted Hughes and it was quite a tumultuous and like, for the literary scene, quite a high profile relationship. Yeah. And she was plagued by mental health issues her whole life. She tried to kill herself the first time when she was 10. Oh, I didn't realise it was that early. Yeah, she, she wrote almost exclusively about feeling like she was mad. Yeah. And she was also extremely, extremely intelligent and willing to learn. Someone told me that she used to write villanelles, which are like a really formal and like limited structure of poem. And she used to write them over and over at school because she thought that was the best way to become the best poet in the world. She was like extremely driven. And if you think that that's not where Villanelle from Killing Eve gets her name, then (laughs) I disagree because... I think that's definitely part of it. Anyway, Sylvia Plath also famously and also tragically took her own life in 1963. She was 30. First of all, I just wanted to take a little moment to appreciate that we've almost all of us heard of this woman and she only was alive for 30 years and I think that's quite impressive. It is, yeah. But what's interesting particularly about this collection of poems is that It was the last one that was published by her, but it was published two years after she died. She did intend to have it published, but not the collection that we currently have called Ariel. After her death, Ted Hughes supposedly changed the collection. He dropped 12 poems and added 12 others that she'd written. Oh, okay. And he changed the order. And while obviously a lot of people see this as an act of love because they they did love each other and it was probably all done in so much affection and fondness because they they helped each other with their work but something to me about that just feels like crossing a line a bit yeah I'm always on the fence about stuff being published after the person's died I can never decide how I feel about it because part of you wants to know what they wrote Mm -hmm. and the other part of you's like but what if they didn't what if they weren't happy with it it's like a lot of the poems were, you know, finished, but it's just the fact as well that she like she had them in an order. Yeah, which must have been for a reason. Right, because a poetry collection, as much as it doesn't always do it clearly, it does tell a story. Yeah. So, and I also just think it's a bit ironic that like this is a woman who grappled her whole life for a sense of control that she didn't feel that she had. And she was a huge feminist and she really recognised the place that she was in and then her most famous collection was all changed about by her husband after she died yeah it just speaks to a lot of the issues that we were just talking about that's my little soapbox and sylvia plath herself her themes across all of her work are 
well documented. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of madness. There's a lot on femininity and mothers. There's also a lot on fathers because she lost hers when she was nine. There's a bit of stuff on not necessarily sexual assault, but like the trauma that is female sexuality. It's all really cheery. (laughs) If these sort of themes appeal to you, but you're not really a poetry person, I'd really recommend The Bell Jar because it was her only novel and it is really incredible. I read Ariel. I bought it last week. I've been meaning to buy it for ages and I read it all in one sitting, which I don't always do with poetry. And what I noticed about it and what I really want to talk about today was the frequency of recurring images throughout the collection. Okay. And obviously this isn't a new thing in poetry or in writing. A lot of writers go back to the same images all the time, but it's something that I struggle to like allow myself to do because I always feel like it's a bit lazy or like have I used this too much or like do I talk about it too much yeah I'm probably the same actually and I always feel a bit of guilt about it and I think what this collection has helped me realize is that there's a lot more value to going back to the same images if they're what fit for you rather than trying to cast around and find different ones just for the sake of finding different ones yeah I could do it with a lot of images in this book there's there's a lot of bees There's a lot of moons, there's a lot of perils in this book, like frequently a lot throughout. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack with any of those. Yeah. I thought I'd go a little bit more general and just go with the colour red in this book because it's probably the most frequently used image. It's in almost every poem, obviously I'm not going to read every poem, but I thought I'd pick out some instances of the colour red and show sort of how they change across the book. That's very, sorry to interject, but that's very interesting because the book cover, or the one that you have, is mm. blue. So you would not think that, um, you know, like bluey green. Yeah, but well, I think it's clever that it is that because she uses green as well. She uses green and white and black to all kind of put the red against. Yeah, okay. In her In her writing, she often has... Like, this is super general and not at all academic, but she often has, like, she'll have, like, white teeth or white pearls or white, like, a white sheet or something. She has a lot of white when it comes to her hospitalizations, of which there were a lot. Yeah. And then she'll have, like, a black space in those, so, like, the window or, like, a box or something will be black to be, like, the unknown. And then she'll often have green as, like, a little glimmer of hope or newness. It's quite, like, instinctive things that you would have with those colours. But, yeah, it's interesting that there's no red on the book. But if you look at the inside cover... Oh! It's the same pattern, but it's all in red. That's cool. It is cool. Well done to the Faber book designer that made this copy. Yep. But yeah, so I'm not going to read the poems that these are all from because they're all quite long. But she has a poem called Lady Lazarus, which is quite famous. And it's rage, okay? (laughs) The overall mood is rage. (laughs) She's coming back. The idea that she's died and come back and died and come back is quite literal for Sylvia Plath Mm -hmm. because of the amount of times she tried to kill herself. I'll read the last four little stanzas so you can get some of the, the vibe. I am your opus. I am your valuable, that pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, you poke and stir. Flesh, bone, there's nothing there. A cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Herr God, Herr Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash, I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. I love that. I've read that poem before. It's like one of my favourite poems. I just love the absolute unadulterated vitriol 
that comes out of that <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So there we can see that the red hair is put against, you know, the, the gold and the white of the cake of soap and things like that. It's quite striking. And there the red is imbued with like a lot of power. And it's quite an um, like empowering and uplifting image. But then just one poem later, the red takes on quite a different tone. So this is an extract from a poem called Tulips that takes place when she's in a sanatorium. She's observing the room around her. I didn't want any flowers. I only wanted to lie with my hands turned up and be utterly empty. How free it is. You have no idea how free. The peacefulness is so big it dazes you, and it asks nothing. A name tag, a few trinkets. It is what the dead close on. Finally, I imagine them shutting their mouths on it like a communion tablet. The tulips are too red in the first place. They hurt me. Even through the gift paper, I could hear them breathe, lightly through their white swaddlings like an awful baby. Their redness talks to my wound. It corresponds. They are subtle. They seem to float, though they weigh me down, upsetting me with their sudden tongues and their colour, a dozen red lead sinkers round my neck. That's just two stanzas, but obviously there the red takes on a completely different meaning. It's really threatening to her. Yeah, I loved the tulips are too red, they hurt me. Definitely, and I love like the redness talks to my wound. Mm, so it's this yeah. idea that like and I love that because that is so grounded in human behavior like you're not if you hurt yourself you're not supposed to look at it because it makes it hurt more yeah you know if you have an open wound the worst thing you can do is look down at it because your body will naturally go into the state of really peaceful shock and keep the pain away but as soon as you look at it and your brain registers that it's you it's going to be agony and I think that just like I just think it's like a really beautiful simple way to take that colour and flip it from something that makes her feel dangerous to Mm -hmm. something that's a danger to her yeah so that's like one of the examples then there's there's this one which is called poppies in october and again the red takes on a completely different meaning i think here even the sun clouds this morning cannot manage such skirts nor the woman in the ambulance whose red heart blooms through her coat so astoundingly A gift, a love gift, utterly unasked for, by a sky, palely and flamily igniting its carbon monoxides, by eyes dulled to a halt under bowlers. First of all, like, who is able to write like that? (laughs) Like, why am I still trying? So there, the red heart that blooms through her coat so astoundingly, obviously, she's in an ambulance, this woman. Mm -hmm. So it could be a literal wound that's blown through. But it also makes me think of, like, life and, like, a will to live. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this woman whose red heart blooms so astoundingly a gift, a love gift. Mm -hmm. So it's that idea that, obviously, red can be danger and it can be power, but it's also life and it's, like, love. And, obviously, we we associate romance a lot with the colour red, Valentine's Day and stuff like that. These are all in order, by the way. So it's like she's layering these ideas. Yeah. If you read it in order. I'll just kind of do a little montage now. <laughs> In her poem, it's a long poem called Berkplage? 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 I don't know. I don't know. It sounds German. I don't know how you'd say it. But anyway, there's a line that says, 
Six round black cats in the grass and a lozenge of wood and a naked mouth, red and awkward. Oh. So that makes me think of, like, like body horror. Yeah. Again, like, the discomfort, because red is inside. You know what I mean? It's not supposed to be visible. Yeah, the word awkward is very unsettling as well. Right? So we had we had red as power, and then red as a threat, and then red as, like, life and, like, love, and then this awkward, like, makes it really just uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. And then in the, the title poem, Ariel... We have the child's cry melts into the wall and I am the arrow, the dew that flies, suicidal, at one with the drive into the red eye, the cauldron of morning. So that makes me think of like the sun, mm, the, yeah. the red eye, the cauldron of morning. By this point, I was getting red as this forward movement. She rises with her red hair. The red is like the poppies and she's still and that's why they hurt her. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And this, you know, this driving into the red, into the sun. At that point, I'm thinking like, okay, all of these things that are like big and loud and positive about, well, not positive, but you know, they're active about red. But her whole motivation, or at least the narrator's whole motivation in here is that she doesn't want that. She wants to die. Yeah. So later on, um, near the end of her life, Sylvia Plath took up beekeeping. Oh, I did not know that. Which is a weird hobby, but fair play to her. And obviously, like, let's not forget, bees sting, the most active thing they can do, and then they die. She says, They thought death was worth it, but I have a self to recover, a queen. Is she dead? Is she sleeping? Where has she been? With her lion-red body, her wings of glass. Now it's like she wants to live. She wants to be like the queen that can sting and, and live. Yeah. So it's like it's like flipping and flopping all these all these motivations. <laughs> the final one, sorry, because I know this is super quote heavy, but I just think it's like really, really fascinating. She has a poem called Balloons, which is just about a set of balloons sitting in the living room after Christmas. Her children don't actively appear in a lot of her poetry, mm-hmm. but this is one of the rare ones where her children appear and she says your small brother is making his balloon squeak like a cat seeming to see a funny pink world he might eat on the other side of it he bites then sits back fat jug contemplating a world clear as water a red shred in his little fist and it's such a gorgeous like wholesome image but it's so sad yeah because he's obviously, it's like if you look through that red balloon and you see this like different world and then it's like reality popping back in his face. And that like red scrap seems like, to me, I'd read that quickly as sort of, this is how the world hurts. Like the tulips hurting you because they're too red. Where if when the balloon's blown up, it's everything through it looks pink and edible, like what she yeah. said. Rose tinted glasses. <laughs> exactly! <laughs> oh, it's so good! <laughs> And the final, final one that I want to read is one of the final poems in the in the collection and it's called Poppies in July and I'm going to read the whole of it because it's short. Little poppies, little hell flames, do you do no harm? You flicker, I cannot touch you. I put my hand among the flames, nothing burns. And it exhausts me to watch you flickering like that, wrinkly and clear red like the skin of a mouth. 
a mouth just bloodied, little bloodied skirts. There are fumes that I cannot touch. Where are your opiates, your nauseous capsules? If I could bleed or sleep, or if my mouth could marry a heart like that, or your liquor seep to me in this glass capsule, dulling and stilling, but colourless. Colourless. That's so sad having one of the final poems have that word colourless twice in it as well. And so that's what made me think, not only does the red take on a meaning throughout the book, and this is maybe where you can justify Ted Hughes messing with the order, Mm. because it's like she meant it to. That poem makes me think that she meant to examine every aspect of this image. Yeah. And what it was to her. And that idea of all this red throughout the whole collection and then she's trying to touch it and she can't because the red is just the flowers. It's not harmful. And she wants it to be harmful and Mm. it's not. But what's actually harmful is the colourless things. Yeah. And that's what she wants. Oh, she was so intelligent and she knew, she knew what she was saying. And she was so honest about it. She, these are horrible things to admit that you want. And she just wrote it anyway and she wrote it perfectly. And I just, <sighs> so yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really rough and like chaotic journey through Ariel and the colour red. But what my rough sort of takeaway was is like red starts as something powerful in this collection because it proves the existence of life Mm -hmm. but then that same proof of life is what becomes the poet's personal like curse every time that life is proved to her that that hurts her more because obviously we know this woman was struggling with extreme depression among probably other undiagnosed mental illness and as her wish for death increases she gravitates more towards the red but then the final sort of tragedy is finding out that the red can't hurt her enough i'm actually getting so emotional thinking about it but um i just think that really clicked in for me the way that going back to one image over and over and you could do it with like i say most of the images in this collection it doesn't make it lazy writing it makes it thorough if you do it right and it's a way that you can tell a story through a medium that isn't necessarily associated with narrative oh i love that i'm not the best at analyzing poems i like I'm, I gravitate more towards like longer form stuff, so I find that very fascinating. Oh, well, I'm glad. I think that it's like listening to an album the whole way through. It's different if you listen to one song. It's still great. Mm. But if you listen to the whole album, it can tell you something new. You know? Yeah, there's always like a running theme somehow. <laughs> That's my infatuation for this week, and I like how we both have gravitated towards mental illness and women. And women called Sylvia. Oh, yeah, women called Sylvia. This is the Sylvia episode, guys. <laughs> Apparently so. Let's talk about our own writing. How's writing treating you this week? What you got to say? Well, I've had another week of not really writing much because, as I said, I was back at work this week, so... Yeah. Not really had the time, but what I thought I would talk about today is a very simple idea and something very effective if you want to be a good writer, which is the lesson that we were taught on our first day of creative writing classes, that is, if you want to be a good writer, then you need to be a good reader. It's very true. It is very true. So I think at first glance it sounds 
like a very wishy-washy <laughs> lesson but it's so important because it's good to read other works and learn about like yeah the technicalities of writing so you know simple details like where to put commas and <laughs> where like mm. a new paragraph should start stuff like that but also each book you read is like a little master class in, in crafting a story so some books might teach you about technique while others teach you about like characterization mm. or some might offer up a new kind of structure you've never read before or some might teach you about like the art of crafting like a world like world building mm. and I should say it's not something I consciously think about while I'm reading because I no. just read to enjoy stuff and not because I'm like searching for stuff to use mm. but I think if you look back on your own writing it's interesting to see where you might have unconsciously like got ideas from definitely Definitely. And that's half of what English study is, isn't it? It's not saying the writer consciously went, oh, I'm going to use this influence here. Yeah. It's just saying, well, this is clearly the kind of things they were reading. Yeah. I always find that when I fall off from reading consistently, that's when I like lose motivation with mm. writing. And I think it's why I like suddenly got this idea for the project I'm working on now, because... At the start of the year, I was finally reading books outside of uni, like, consistently, rather than mm. just every now and then. So, yeah, that that is really all I have to say. I'm just passing on advice that I was given years ago. Yeah, I'm telling anyone who wants to write that they should read, and that doesn't just mean, like, novels. It can mean anything, like, graphic novels, journalism, like, blogs. The more you consume, the more you're opening yourself up to new information, and like mm. in turn you'll get new ideas well on the back of that this wasn't like this isn't my topic but I've I've often had people say like but how do you direct your reading mm. like how do you decide what you're going to read without just picking what's popular or what's like advertised to you uh-huh and what I'd say to that is I did a kind of little experiment on this last year that there was a book that I was given from uni for my reading list and I really enjoyed it and so I worked back and read the books that that author said they were influenced by. And then read the books that that author <laughs> said they were influenced by. And I only did it for maybe, f I did it for I think five books worth. Mm -hmm. I, I worked back and obviously it took me eventually further back in history. It's not to say that you need to then go back into classics and things like that if that's not your vibe. But I think if you're unsure of how to create your own little repertoire of things to read, mm -hmm. which, uh, let's be honest, a lot of the people listening to this are going to be previous English students, so a lot of them are going to have faith, are, we're going to be used to a reading list. Yeah. So if you want to kind of create your own reading list and know that you're consuming content, which is going to be benefiting you, that's a good strategy that I've and I agree with that, but I would say on the flip side as well, like read any genre you can because it's good to have variety. Mm, <laughs> well, definitely. And I did get bored. Like there's only so much of that one, like those themes that I could take in one go. Yes. I, yeah, I agree with you. Like read whatever appeals to you. But no, I like, I like that tip as well. Yeah, to try and like tailor a reading list that will help you out. Well, I've been similar this week. I've not really 
I've, I have written because I've been working on my dissertation, but I'm not going to talk about that today. I was more going to ask you a question, actually. Oh, okay. Because I've been thinking about it this past week, about the difference between being a good writer and being a good communicator. Oh, okay. Or whether it's the same thing. Because I think when I meet people, they often think that I'm going to be very naturally articulate. And sometimes I am, but obviously sometimes I'm not. And I just wanted to kind of ask you, like, do you think that being a writer makes you a better communicator? Or do you think that it's a different skill? And, like, do you feel more comfortable communicating in writing? Or, like, do you still feel like speaking face-to-face is easier for you? I don't know if I've thought about it before. I think it's different for me in different scenarios. I'm, I don't think of myself as a very good texter. Like, I would rather talk to someone face-to-face if I was going to have a chat mm. with them. But I know that if it's something, if I have to have a serious conversation with someone, I feel like sometimes I try and write it out first. Like, if it's a conversation I know is coming up, then I yeah. might write it out first. Because often my brain kind of jumps all over the place with ideas so I write them all out in a a word document and then put them in the right order (laughs) which (laughs) sounds very like well it's just very anxious isn't it (laughs) (laughs) it's a little bit extra it's a little bit extra that's not something I do very often but I have done it in the past so I don't know I think I always used to say I used to tell people like oh I'm better at like writing my thoughts Mm. But I actually don't think that's true. I think it's better for me to talk to someone in person to get across what I mean. I don't know if that really answered your question. No, like, it, like to be fair, it's quite an open question because I was just, I don't really have an answer to it either. I've just been thinking about it. And I was just thinking, like, because when I hear that other people are writers, I think my brain automatically expects them a little bit to be decent at getting their thoughts across. Yeah. And I don't think I often take into account the idea that writing is like any other thing. It's a vocation or like a job or like a skill. But it is a different skill from communicating. And I don't think of myself as a very eloquent person when I'm just like speaking to someone. No, neither do I. I think of me that way. But when I, the the reason that I ended up thinking about it was that I realised that I am not a casual texter. Like when I'm texting... I'm quite often in writer mode. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if I have a big thought, I have no problem texting it out to someone just for the sake of it, just for me. And it's usually quite an eloquent text. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then I'll send it. But then I'll realise that I send massive paragraphs to everyone in my life. (laughs) I'm not like a cool, see you soon kind of a texter. And then I thought, am I always in writer mode? But I don't. when I'm speaking, I don't feel like I am because I, I think what texting allows and what the way that texting allows writer mode is that the other person can't interrupt me also i think when you're writing so much of writing is redrafting and rewriting but when you're Mm -hmm. speaking you can't do that no you can't and i think i am a surprisingly bad communicator in real life for someone that spends their life putting their thoughts into words this is very interesting because See, for my M's Insights section, yeah. it's about communication. Oh. So, so we'll, we'll come back to this conversation. Mm-hmm. 
so do you have a quick fire favourite this week? Yes, I do. My quick fire favourite this week is another YouTube channel, actually. You saw me watching this when you were uh, here at the weekend, but it's Bailey Sarian's channel, specifically her series called Murder, Mystery and Makeup. Oh, yeah. So what Bailey does each episode is she does her makeup, which is always immaculate and super cool makeup while telling a true crime story. I just love that she's found this very niche subject and I'm very much here for it. Yeah, it's like your your entire vibe. Yeah, so she's like a good storyteller. She's quite sassy at times, but it's never towards the victims, obviously. Yeah, it's just something a bit different and it gives you something very visually pleasing to watch mm. while hearing about these very horrific things. Yeah, I have to say when I was... I, I came in halfway through a video Yeah, and it was... For the first couple of minutes, I was deeply unsettled because I did not understand what was happening. Yeah. But after a while, it's kind of hypnotic, like, watching her put the makeup on. And to be fair, the episode you saw was a very dark one. They're not always <laughs> quite that bad. Like, that's really all I have to say about it. It's just quite fun. I've been watching them, like, while I'm getting ready in the morning and stuff because they're, they're kind of longer. They're kind of between 20 minutes and 40 minutes, depending on the story. So if you like a longer youtube video which i do worth a watch cool what is your quick fire favorite this week my quick fire favorite is a music video mm. it is not new but it's new to me okay so it's by a band called swimmers but it's like swmrs i hadn't heard of them before but someone sent me this video the song is called lose it and the video is basically just this girl and her friend larking about they're like in downtown LA and they're like on the highways and then they're like at the seaside and then they're in a shopping center and they're just like it's just a good time I don't Mm -hmm. know how to describe it other than a good time but the actual aesthetic of the video is why it's my quickfire favorite because if you can imagine the end of the fucking world aesthetic where it's like very stripped back and kind of artsy Mm -hmm. but the color palette is all LA so it's very like pinks and gold and like shiny but with that kind of grungy feel to it and I don't know I just found it visually pleasing it's a good song it's not a groundbreaking song but it's a good song (laughs) and yeah I just like I I get this way with music videos where I see one and I just like it so I watch it over and over because I don't know there's something comforting about it and i'd recommend it i just think it's 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 a cool little clip if you need three minutes of just escapism in your day go for it what is your rant this week luckily my rant this week is not quite so angry and you know serious and heavy is my cookie rant from <laughs> from last week um, which we've had feedback about by the way i don't know if you saw but rhiannon says that she comes from a five-person household and so she disagrees with you well that's her prerogative <laughs> <laughs> i have no evidence to base my claims on so fair enough i don't know if you could call this a rant it's a nice rant so okay maybe more of a maybe more of rebecca's reflections okay okay but yeah so the other day i went on a walk in nature god i hate when people say that it's like where, <laughs> where, where the fuck else did you go for a walk <laughs> and i came upon a wall and it was spray painted with like this little mural and it was kind of like you'd have loved it i think i actually put a picture up of it. i saw this yeah like it was like a spooky wall 
So it was like midnight blue. It had a big sort of cartoon moon and a big bat and like creepy vines and stuff all over it. But it was very like jaunty style. Yeah. You know? It was like a fun cartoony style. But what like struck me why I stopped to take a picture of this was that it had no more wall either side of it. It was just like a random piece of wall. Like there wasn't the rest of the wall. It had no function. And so I thought to myself, like, clearly that was meant to come down. And then I wondered, did someone make that pretty mural and then whoever was meant to take it down just didn't take it down because it was nice? Like, that's what I really like to think happened here. Yeah, I hope that's what happened. And because I thought without that little mural there, the path that I was on could be really creepy. It's quite secluded. It was quite dark. There aren't that many streetlights. And there's like a lot of long grass. And just up ahead of it, there's like an underpass. And I was thinking, like, finding art in places like that, I'm grateful because it makes you feel like there's humanity around the place, even when it feels really, like, secluded and scary. And there's, like, obviously loads of examples of that. There's a lot in Dundee as well, of, like, just little tiny pieces of street art in unexpected places. And I think there's not enough outward appreciation for people who make things like that and put them in places where they might not be seen by a lot of people. Yeah. Like, it's one thing to put your street art, you know, on a main street where everyone's going to see it, but it's another thing to just do it in a little place that needs brightening up. Yeah, I love that. You know, so I just wanted... This is a, not a rant, but a, a thank you to the people that, A, put the art there in the first place, and then B, the people that just leave it there because it's nice. I love the street art in Dundee. I particularly like seagulls art. I'll link his Instagram. Like, so Dundee's like notorious for having massive seagulls everywhere. They're really terrifying. They are. But he does like art of like seagulls holding like knives and stuff all around Dundee. It just brings me joy. I just think it's funny that there's like this inside joke about seagulls in Dundee. They're like dogs, man. They are so big. Huge. They are so big. But also, like, you know, there's a little bit of street art in Dundee that I love. It's like when you're going down Meadowside. And it's on the street where, like, the bach is. Um, the batch, even. The restaurant. Yeah. And it's, like, above. It's one of those little power boxes. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, like, a little person with, like, a little funny face. Or, like, maybe it's not a person, but it's a little figure, ghosty thing with a little funny face just, like, peeping up above the box on the yeah. wall. Yeah. And it just I makes like me so one. happy every single time that I see it. Have you got an insight for us this week? Yes. So... As I said, this one is about communication. So I thought I would journey back to CoStar today. So for those of you who don't know, it's an astrology app. And you might remember in our very first episode, I read out some information about our sun signs, which was pretty accurate. Today I thought I'd do something similar, but I'm actually going to read out what CoStar believes is incompatible between us. Which is uh, about Mercury. So Mercury, they say Mercury determines how you communicate, talk, think and process information but also indicates how you learn. It is the mind's planet. When I say you, it means me, and when I say there, it means Rebecca. Right. Your Mercury is in Pisces, meaning your intellect is emotionally driven, dreamy, and a bit in the clouds. Your imagination and intuition keeps you open to other people's ideas. You are a good listener, though you may have a tendency for white lies. You prefer face-to-face communication. Their Mercury is in Gemini, meaning their intellect is dynamic, quick-witted and eclectic. They're deeply curious about everything and their energy is often scattered in a million directions. The way they speak is articulate and witty, but they're likely to talk behind people's backs. It's challenging to understand how each other thinks and you frequently argue. 
Well, see, it was all true up until that last bit. I up think. until you frequently argue. I don't think that's true at all. I think, though, so. I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but I think it is challenging for us to understand how we think because we do think very differently. Oh, yeah, we do. We definitely come at things from different angles. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought that was quite funny. Um, I just love how everything about Pisces is like, your your head's in the clouds. I'm like, yep. <laughs> as soon as it was like, you're in Gemini, I was like, oh no, this is going to be chaotic. And it yeah. absolutely was, but it was so accurate. But no, that was interesting. And I think, yeah, it, it was fairly accurate, which bothers me how accurate these always are. But... I know. But that is apparently, according to CoStar, the only thing that we're not very compatible on is communication process and information thing i think it probably is quite true though because i think a lot of the time when we dilemma about a social interaction outside of our friendship Mm. like we'll we'll both see it very differently yeah that is like we can both take very different things from the same interaction yeah (laughs) and you'll just look at me like what (laughs) what are you talking about question for this week is from our friend stephanie oh nice well she actually asked two questions and i couldn't pick a favorite so we're gonna do two this week oh good (laughs) nice so the first one is what book or piece of writing encouraged your love of reading i feel like i kind of have two answers for this so the more kind of obvious one is harry potter Mm. because my dad was reading that like i think it was a couple years after the first one came out and so he was reading them. I think he read them to me for a bit. And then I'm pretty sure by the time either The Goblet of Fire or Order of the Phoenix came out, I had like read them at that point. So mm. they were kind of like the first sort of like adult quote unquote books that I, I read. So mm. that's definitely one. But I think I have more memories of actually reading with a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. okay. Because I remember my cousin Chris read them first and he's like not a reader in the slightest. But he was reading them and then I borrowed them and then I got obsessed with them. And I can remember being at my grand and grandpa's caravan and like finishing one of them in one go. Mm. And I think that was like the first time I'd ever done that was like, you know, not like a picture book. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like I, I feel like I have more memories attached to that series. Yeah, I think that would I would say encouraged my reading. I like it was like a mystery story, and mm. I think that's what properly got me into those. So nice. kind of two answers, but probably a series of unfortunate events. No, I think and I think Harry Potter is the default answer for like most people our age, right? Cause yeah, yeah, I think we so. grew we all grew up with it, and like I was the same. My mom read them to me when I was little and then even when like I was much older and I could read them myself like we still just read them together yeah tradition so I think that like also like that emotional bond kind of encouraged my love of reading but the book weirdly that sprang into my mind when you asked me that and I've not thought about this book in years it's a book called Stray and I can't even remember who wrote it but it was a novel that was in my primary school library Mm -hmm. and it was like it was a proper novel it was quite chunky and I 
had obviously at school you know you're getting like your magic key books and stuff like that (laughs) when you're really little and I saw this in the library and I was obsessed with cats when I was little and this had like this photograph of this like disheveled like sad cat on the cover and I picked it up because it had a cat on the cover and then I was like I need to read this book Um, and they they weren't gonna let me take it out of the library because I was too young oh it was basically meant to be for like upper school and they, th- they thought that it was going to, like, hurt my confidence because I wouldn't be able to get through it. Um, so I went to the library, like, day on day because they wouldn't let me take it out. I read, like, the first half of it and then I was like, I've read this much. Can I take this now? Yeah. And they let me. And so I think, like, it was a total don't judge a book by its cover moment. Like, I don't even remember the story, but I remember, like, seeing the book so clearly and I remember just being like, no, I'm going to read this. And I did and I loved it. That's cool. Because you mentioned cats, that also reminded me of The Nine Lives of Montezuma by Michael Mapargo. And I was obsessed with Michael Mapargo when I was younger as well. So he's another author that I probably would mention. Definitely. I was, like, The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips was another one that Mm. I, like, as soon as I'd like proved I can read novels by myself then yeah. that was one of the first ones that I read. I love The White Horses of Xenor and I think I think that was a book of short stories and I remember that one and it, it was like a proper like ghost story as well I remember that one very well. Nice I read The Butterfly Lion I remember in mm. one go because my yeah. mum was on a really long phone call <laughs> <laughs> and I just like opened it and read it in one go and it was just oh we love Michael Rapargo yeah. he's so good. What was the other question? So the other one is favourite genre and least favourite. It's tough because I do, despite what this podcast brings across, I do read outside of the gothic genre. I do read a lot of other books. I I feel like I'm going to have to say the gothic's my favourite because I'm literally about to like make a career or whatever on it. I just love it. I love like the whole kind of mystery side of it and I like spooky stuff and... I don't know. Yeah, I'd, I'd say The Gothic's my favourite. Least favourite's quite hard, though. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of... I've thought of, like, modules at uni, and I suppose the one I liked the least was, like, the modernist and contemporary or, or mm. something. There was books I did like in that, but there was ones I really didn't like. I think I just don't like stuff when it's really sparse and really abstract like super experimental where that's the only point to it yeah like i like a story <laughs> mm. to follow so i suppose that genre i, I guess yeah I, i'm not really sure but I, that's probably my best guess <laughs> see it's hard for me because like when i if you'd asked me like three years ago what my favorite genre was i'd have said fantasy mm. but i've like i've got really into like literary fiction in the last few years and like I feel like that's what I write. I agree with you, like, the stuff that is labelled as, like, modernist and contemporary, I cannot stand it. I don't like modernism. It's so boring. I feel like what's happening now, like, with really new writing is, like, you're getting all the cool little technical bits of modernism, but it all has a heart. Yeah, definitely. Like, things like Max Porter's Grief is the Thing with Feathers Mm -hmm. and Lani, that's very much, like literary modern fiction but it doesn't feel like the modernists of like the 60s yeah i think i think probably my favorite genre is literary fiction but my least favorite that's difficult to say because it's also literary fiction (laughs) no do you know actually what my least favorite probably is is like 
I do read these and I enjoy them, but objectively, probably your average rom-com book. Yeah, not really something I read, to be honest. Like, there's a few good authors of those types of books, but in general, they're not really my thing. Well, those were good questions. Yeah, they were good questions. Thanks, Stephanie. So that's us this week. Yeah, oh, that was a big one. (laughs) So we do have like a little announcement. We're just going to say that from this episode, we're going to move to a two-week upload schedule. Rebecca has her dissertation, so she has to concentrate on that. Yeah, sorry guys, just temporarily though. Yeah, we hope it'll only be like a couple episodes. We'll let you know when things will change, but the episodes after this will be in two weeks' time. Yeah, so just bear with us and we'll try and put out some fun content in the meantime. And if you have any comments or questions, then email them to infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com and we have all our social media, which I will link in the show notes as usual. That's where we'll post any extra content. And all the links to everything we've talked about will be in there as well. And yeah, see you in two weeks, guys. Bye. Bye.